Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series, Faith That Works. So let's turn in our Bibles to James chapter 3, verses 7 to 12, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Taming the Tongue. There are passages of Scripture that, at first glance, strike me as altogether depressing and seemingly hopeless. James chapter 3, verses 7 to 12 is one of those. It will make the point that as hard as we can, we can't control the power of the tongue to do evil. And as we're going to see, that, that seems to be the end of the matter. James presents us with no resolution to that harsh reality. And so we will have to be patient to wait for a resolution. You know, when we come to James 4, verse 7, James will tell us to submit ourselves to God. Resist the devil, he says, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he's going to say, and God will draw near to you. Now, hope is going to come, but James doesn't present us with that hope in the middle of chapter 3. And as we study this passage, we might ask, well, why? Why not, as James describes the unruly tongue with its potential to do evil, why not present us with a solution immediately? And of course, James doesn't tell us why he presents no solution, but as I've mused on the book of James, I've wondered. You know, James seems to be on the issue of the tongue very much like, well, an oncologist who tells her patient that the cancer in the lungs has metastasized. It's now in the vital organs. Its power is unstoppable. No matter what treatment we offer, it will be ineffective. And we might find such news to be shocking, but that news allows the cancer patient to put his household in order, to bless his wife and his kids and deal with the reality of death. You know, as harsh and cruel as the announcement of the oncologist is, there, there is some grace in that harsh announcement. It's the grace of truth and the need to face it. It seems the same way in this passage. But of course, the promise in the end that, that God is still there in the picture makes the harsh announcement not altogether hopeless. You know, I think that James is telling us the horrible truth so that we don't deceive ourselves. No one cries out to God for help if they feel they can deal with the situation on their own. But says James, the problem is a lot bigger than you ever thought. And you need to think about that. You need to face this issue. You need to stop deceiving yourself. You have a monster in your mouth, and you won't be able to tame that monster. But I'm getting ahead of myself. In the first six verses of James chapter 3, James is making the point that the tongue is that thing that sets the evil world aflame. It, it shapes the eternal destiny of men and women. It is a world of unrighteousness, says James. And we know it's so. You know, many a life has been ruined by gossip. Many a nation has gone to war because of the skillful use of evil words. Sometimes a thoughtless word has destroyed a marriage. Lying words have sent innocent people to jail. Doubting words said from a pulpit have driven men and women from the faith. Slandering words have cost people their jobs and have destroyed their reputations. Words have divided families, communities, and nations for generations. Words, although they are merely sounds produced using our throat and our tongues, shape the future of the human race, and they often do it for evil. And with that said, let's read today's text. It's James chapter 3, verses 7 to 12. 
For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. You know, in essence, this ends James' description of the power of the tongue. And as depressing as that is, James offers us insight into the power of the tongue. He begins by pointing out that human beings have been able to tame every kind of animal, but we can't tame the tongue. You know, the example is a good one. You know, most of us have watched dolphins doing tricks in response to their trainer. You know, when I was young and the circus came to my hometown, I was always amazed at trained bears and lions. A lion tamer had trained the lion to look vicious, but it was easily seen that the training had long taken the danger from the animal. But this example of training animals can be taken to other spheres of human endeavor. Not only do human beings train animals, we train all of nature to serve us. From the ancient training of the destructive power of fire, making it into a force to serve us, to a modern nuclear power plant, which takes the raw destructive power of atomic energy and harnesses it into usable energy, human beings have trained so many natural forces. It's our ability to harness the world that makes us think that if we put our minds to it, we should be able to harness and train anything. After all, we should be able to use the human spirit, that can-do attitude, and we could apply that to our own nature, so we think. Many of us have come to think that the only thing that ever holds us back from any venture at all is the limitations we place upon ourselves. So if we learn to think outside the box, uh, we would see solutions to perplexing problems that up until now we've not been able to solve. And James might agree to much of what we say, but he would say, well, it's not true of the tongue. Uh, he would say, you're deceiving yourself if you think you can rein this in. And behind this statement is a large theological truth. When human beings fell into sin, they lost the power to govern themselves. We are now governed by sin and, as such, have become slaves to sin. Sin, not self, is our ultimate master. Well, Paul affirmed that in that very painful chapter, which is Romans 7. In verse 15, he writes, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Then to verse 21, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And, and then, of course, that agonizing cry of verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. You know, for Paul, there is on the inside a battle between the will and the flesh. James agrees when he says that there is a desire to tame the tongue, but then the tongue reasserts itself. It will not submit to our will. Indeed, it will demand that it rule over our will. We have all manner of scriptural warning about how we use words. Psalm 34 verse 13 says, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. 
Proverbs 10.19 says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. And then Proverbs 13.3 says, Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Stop talking so much. And, And when you do talk, think through what you're going to say very carefully. For if you let the tongue simply run loose, it will say things that you're going to regret later. It will cause immeasurable harm. You know, these words from Scripture are immensely important, and we should heed them. You've got to control your tongue. That's a genuine sign of your faith. But, says James, you should tame your tongue, but you won't be able to do it. You'll commit to doing it, and then the tongue will overpower your will, and you'll say things you're going to rue many years from now. You'll hurt, destroy, and you'll poison. Now, as I have mentioned, this is the doctrine of human inability to govern our own sin. We'll not be able to suppress our own sin. That's that's the bad news. The good news is that the Holy Spirit can enable us to do that which we can't do on our own, and that is exceedingly good news. God provides grace for sinners. He can break the power of sin. But James' comment is that we can't. But his comment is also, and would you notice, how big a problem this is? And would you also notice how helpless you are over the ugliness of sinful words? Now, having established that the power of the tongue can't be tamed, James then adds that this thing that we can't tame is a restless evil. It's full of deadly poison. He's no doubt alluding to Psalm 141-3. It says, Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their heart and stir up wars continually. They make their tongue sharp as a serpent, and under their lips is the venom of asps. It's the imagery of a poisonous snake. Once it strikes, death follows, and words are like that. You know, I sometimes sit in a coffee shop and do my work, and conversations are all around me, and sometimes I'm overwhelmed at how people talk about other people, slicing and dicing them. And I've said, oh, Lord, do I do that? And then I've said, oh, Lord, do others speak of me that way? How much we're poisoning each other. It is restless, unstoppable evil, the very thing that mocks us and makes our religious confession seem hollow. As I've said sometimes when reading scripture, I know it's true, but I know it's also depressing. We've all been guilty of taking for granted that God's Word is always the perfect Word and available to us at all times. That's why we wanted to share with you an amazing book that will surely lift your thinking towards Bible reading for the better. It's called Before You Open Your Bible by Matt Smethurst. In this insightful resource, you'll find wisdom and guidance on how to approach your Bible with a positive mindset so you get the most out of your time in His Word. And because the message in this book is in sync with the mission of Back to the Bible Canada, we're making this resource available as a gift free during the month of July. Simply call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to request your copy for free today. Now then, from this helpless and awful picture, 
James now asks us to consider our own behavior, and then from that, he gives us two important images. So let's start with a consideration of our own behavior. I'm reading verses 9 and 10. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. James, please notice, is not speaking about what others are doing. He's speaking directly to Christians. My brothers, he says. He intends his fellow believers to understand that they are doing these things. So let's understand what it is that James says that we regularly do. With our mouth, he says, we bless our Lord and Father. He might be referring to Christian worship where we sing adoration to God and and together repeat Christian truth. He might also be referring to the daily expressions of praise that we offer up to God. Everything from thanking Him for the food that we eat to the prayers of gratefulness in our daily prayers uh, to the expressions we have in thankfulness for the everyday kindness of God. And by the way, that is how Christians act. James is not saying we're rogues and hypocrites. No, no. He acknowledges the sincerity in which we live under the awareness of the kindness of God and with the awareness of his glory and the necessity that we feel to reverence him, to love him, to live in obedience to him. We are servants of the Most High, and we are overwhelmed that it is so. Now, James is not being sarcastic that we bless God with our mouths. Notice also that James does not say that then we turn around and curse God or that we use the name of God in a casual manner or even that we use his name in profanity. Listen, Christians don't do that. Uh, We've been trained that the name of God is to be used in worship or prayer or when we discuss theology or biblical truth. We never even use God as an expression. We've trained our lips that God is to be spoken of in reverence. And the reason we don't see a problem with our duplicity is because when we curse people, we, we just simply assume that they're worthy of cursing. On the other hand, God is worthy of praise. God is holy, they're not. All God's works are righteous, theirs are evil. And furthermore, those whom we curse may well have done evil to us or to those whom we love. God never treated us in that way. We curse because we think that's just. After all, it's time someone said it like it is. And so we might well complain to James. This is no logical contradiction. We're righteous when we bless God, and we're righteous when we curse men and women who are worthy of our cursing. But listen closely to James' description. He doesn't say we curse people, but that we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Now, that is standard Christian theology. God made human beings in his image, in his likeness. Even the wicked are made in his image. That means that in some fashion, we are all remarkably like our creator. We all have the ability to reason, to create, to make moral judgments about matters, We're created for relationship, and ultimately, we were made to long for this relationship with our Creator. I know we're all fallen and that the image has become twisted and bent, but the image remains nonetheless. And if you want to work this out, try listening to people, even people unlike yourself. Listen to their stories, hear their passions, understand their disappointments, know their longings, Be amazed at their accomplishments and see their love for their children. The Bible speaks about a concept we call 
common grace in which God pours out the grace of civility, even of mercy and compassion on all manner of people who are lost in sin. All people are the work of his hands, and if that's so, be careful not to curse the works of God's hands. You know, when you do that, you insult their maker, yep. It is astonishing that on one hand, we bless God, and then using that very same tongue, we mock God by cursing his creation. But I think here we are wise if we ask what James has in mind when he speaks of actually cursing someone. You know, in the Bible, a curse refers to something quite specific, and since James is steeped in the Old Testament, we need to ask, what has he got in mind when he says, we curse people? So let me suggest two examples very different from one another. The first is found in 1 Samuel 17. It's the account of David and Goliath. In verse 43, it says that as David stepped out onto the battlefield, the Philistine cursed David by his gods. So the idea was that a curse from the gods would lead David to defeat. A curse was thought to dictate a man's future. Now here's the second example. It comes from Proverbs 26, verse 2. Like a sparrow in its flitting, like a swallow in its flying, a curse that is causeless does not alight. Now, that might be so, but the idea behind that thought is that a curse that is given for a good cause, well, it actually rests on someone and it does bring harm into their lives. Imagine someone who says, damn you. What's being said? You know, it's a wish that damnation would indeed be in that person's future. It's a hope that this curse will bring about a desired future. Now imagine we say, you'll get yours. It means that suffering and recompense will come to you in due time. We should fear for our souls when we say such a thing. See, we should fear because we ourselves want the mercy of God. We ourselves plead with God that he should not treat us as our sins deserve. But what happens when we plead with God that he should treat others as their sins deserve? How is it that we plead for mercy in ourselves and for damnation in others? And this comes from the same mouth. That's that's quite a thing to have happen, wouldn't you say? How can both of these things come from the same mouth? And then James answers his own question with two rather vivid illustrations. You know, at first glance, we might think that the two images are the same, but it's really not so. So let's consider each one in turn. Verse 11, does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Now that's a question. The answer is no, no, it doesn't. So what's the point? The point is that this kind of duplicity that we find in the tongue doesn't happen anywhere else in nature. The tongue might at one moment offer up a blessing and then in the next offer up a curse. Only the tongue acts in that fashion. Nature never does. Think about that, says James. Now, the second image, and that's verse 12. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Now, again, at first glance, this seems to be saying the same thing as verse 11. But if you think about it, This picture actually adds something. It's a new thought. Let's assume for a moment that you don't know what a fig tree looks like, and that's not such a great assumption for most North Americans. You know, we've never seen a fig tree, but we have seen figs. That's because they're sold in grocery stores everywhere. So let's assume for a moment that you go to Israel and you see a fig growing on a tree. 
you recognize it as a fig and therefore you immediately assume that the tree the fig is growing on is a fig tree. See, every time you find a fig growing on a tree, it is a fig tree. Take it to the bank. There are no exceptions to that. But here's where the tongue is different. Every time you see someone saying gracious words, even words of praise to God, you can't assume they are a gracious person. Indeed, there are people who are gracious in some settings and absolutely vicious in others. Consider, for instance, the man who speaks gracious words to his boss, and then when the boss is gone, utterly tears apart people who are working under him in his department. It may be that according to verse 11, this kind of a thing is impossible in nature, but it is possible for the tongue. It may be that words do reflect who the person is, but soon we find out how deceptive the tongue actually is. Now, as I've said, by the time we come to the end of this section, we're rightfully depressed. But James doesn't want us to be depressed. He's looking for a different reaction. James wants us to see how big the problem of the tongue actually is. For if we don't see it the way it is, we're going to ignore the problem, and therefore we're going to let that problem fester, and we're going to lie to ourselves. We're going to say it's not a problem at all. In the end, we're going to need to plead with God. Oh, Lord, we're going to need to say, heal my tongue. I never knew it. I never knew what an offense my tongue was. I want to draw near to you. Teach me how to speak that I might honor you. But until we are shown what's actually going on, we will not offer that prayer. Do take hope. God has a solution, but we can't go to him for the solution until we acknowledge before him the problem that we have. John, I'm wondering, is there any way to, to correct our tongues? I mean, there's people out there that have real sharp tongues. How do we help them over that? For a while, Ben, I worked with, um, with an older man, and, and one of the things that he always said to me is, as I grow older, I'm praying that the Lord makes me more gentle and gracious towards others. Um, maybe what we need to do is rehearse in our own minds some of the things that we really just love about others and maybe even about others that we disagree with. Uh, perhaps we need to just train our way of thinking because sometimes I suspect what comes out of our tongues are the things that we've been meditating on, and we need to see that for what it actually is. I think that's a great word. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Back to the Bible Canada has wrapped up the Israel Experience 2022 with a success like never before. Which is why we had no hesitation with jumping right into planning our Israel Experience 2023. The dates will be April 16th to the 24th with an optional Jordan extension from April 24th to the 29th. This trip is an opportunity to see and experience so many of the critical biblical sites you're so familiar with in the Bible. Like one guest said, we've been in ministry for nearly 40 years, read our Bibles through nearly every year, but this took it from 2D to 3D. If you'd like to take your walk with Christ to the next level, be sure to register as soon as possible. Spots fill up fast. 
Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 to reserve your spot or visit backtothebible.ca.